You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. Happy Hump Day, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast. Thank you guys very much for tuning in, and uh, we have a pretty cool podcast today. Um, typically I am the person who does the interview for the Hunter Profile podcast, but today I have my good buddy, Mark Kenyon, and all of you guys know him from the Wired to Hunt blog and podcast, and he actually turns the table and interviews me for a Hunter Profile podcast. Um, I know a lot of you guys have sent some emails wanting to um, listen to my background, my story, uh, how I came up in hunting, and a little bit of the history there. And uh, so that's what we did. Uh, I listened to what you guys had to say. I uh, called up Mark and I, and I said, hey, what, what do you got going on? And he said, uh, I got a lot of things going on and I really don't have a lot of time to talk to you. And I said, well, you just... Can I please? So I begged. I just begged for a while, and he, he felt sorry for me. So he's like, "Yeah, I'll come on your podcast again and uh, get you some really big ratings." So, <laughs> so he he uh, decided to come on the show. He's going to interview me. So I'm going to keep this introduction really, really short. And uh, before we actually get into the main podcast, let's hear what Matt Klein from Exodus Trail Cameras has to say about why you should choose an Exodus Trail Camera. Well, the one thing I'd say is, one, the fact that people are willing to give us their hard-earned money. So, you know, our product's in the $200 price point. Frankly, that's a day of somebody's time. You know, we come from the construction industry. That's our background. It's a big deal to us that people are willing to spend their money on us. We want to show people that when they buy Exodus, they're getting the best value in the market. Our five-year warranty um, and guarantee, our 90-day money-back guarantee, if you're not happy with your camera, you give us a call, we'll, we'll totally take care of you. In fact, we'll pay the return shipping. Um, our 50% off theft replacement policy, all of those things mean a lot. But the fact that we build our cameras to last, the fact that we build our cameras for guys that are chasing big, mature deer, not just as novelty items, like a lot of companies are building them, you know, our products literally are our trade. That's our passion, what we do, what we love. And every single one that goes out, we test, we make sure that it, you're going to get a product that's working well. We make sure that you're going to get a product that's working for years to come and is going to assist you in everything that we love to do as hunters and as outdoorsmen. We're really excited that, uh, that, that people are considering Exodus. If you guys want to find out more information about Exodus Trail Cameras, go to their website and visit exodusoutdoorgear.com. And if you do decide to purchase one of their trail cameras, enter the code 9FINGERS. That's the number 9 followed by the word FINGERS, no spaces, and you will receive $20 off your order. 
Now, just a, a bit of fair warning, we did have some minor technical difficulties on this podcast. Uh, Mark was recording out of his truck, and uh, I think my neighbor was hacking my uh, internet somehow. So uh, there are some spots in there where it gets a little spotty, but uh, thank you guys again for tuning in, and uh, let's get into your Hump Day podcast. Now, typically I start off every interview with I have so-and-so on the phone, welcome, blah, blah, blah. But I feel that with this guest, I need to do a better job of doing a bigger, bolder, more flamboyant introduction because this guy, when it comes to the hunting industry, this guy is, he's, he's like top shelf. He's, <laughs> he's not Hawkeye vodka. He's like absolute vodka. You know what I mean? So, so let, me, let me try this. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. Our guest today literally needs no introduction, but because I like to talk like this, I'm going to introduce him like this. <laughs> Hold on to your seats, everybody. The guest today is none other than my good friend and boss from another Wired to Hunt podcast, Mark Kenyon! <laughs> I'm gonna, you need to do that on every Wired to Hunt podcast episode now, Dan. Well done. Well done. Hey, thank you, thank you. hey thanks for coming on the show, man. No problem. I'm excited to, uh, to chat and kind of turn the tables on you today a little bit. I know. I know. You are, I think, maybe the third person who's been on this show two times. So oh, nice. you're the third. You're the third. You're, you've had two appearances on this show, and this is the third person. So that's a big deal. Well, I appreciate you having me on again. Right, right. So the reason that you're on, and uh, we talked about this uh, via email and some other conversations, is because I've had a lot of guys uh, – I do these Hunter Profile podcasts, and I have a lot of guys email me, and they're like, hey, why don't you do a Hunter Profile podcast on yourself? And it just would seem odd if I was talking to myself for because, you know, I do that a lot anyway. And then people see me and then they say, oh, dude, that dude's crazy. I was going to say that. I feel like this is just the norm for you, Dan. Exactly. Exactly. But but so Mark here, he's going to kind of interview me and do an inter, uh, uh, Hunter Profile podcast kind of as – him leading the conversation and just kind of a, a BS session like we always do. But before we actually get into that, I want to talk a little bit about uh, what you're doing out in Montana, Mark. You are you're one of the lucky guys, um, and I I have a I have a hidden jealousy for you because <laughs> you send these pictures of you're up in the mountains, you're fly fishing, and uh, so talk to us a little bit about maybe some of your favorite things of your trip this summer out in uh, Idaho and Montana. Yeah, it's been a good summer. Um, so like you said, I spent a month in Idaho and a month in Montana, which is just wrapping up now. I'm in my final like you know, six or seven days now and have been doing a lot of hiking, camping, fly fishing, and some scouting for a whitetail hunt I'm going to do in September. So probably my favorite things, you know what, the, maybe one of my absolute highlights just happened last week. I actually got to do a float trip, a fly fishing trip floating down the Yellowstone River with a couple friends, one of my buddy Corey Pearsall from Sitka, and then my other friend Matt McCormick 
who's a professional photographer. Awesome, awesome stuff he does there. And they took me down the river. They actually know what they're doing. I just learned, I taught myself to fly fish last year. So I, I still am kind of an idiot out there just trying to figure it out. But uh, they knew what they were doing. So they put me in some good areas and I caught my biggest trout on a fly ever. A real nice cutthroat trout and um, three other really nice cutties. So that was a sweet, sweet trip. Awesome fish. And, uh, man, there's just been, there's too much to summarize in a couple minutes. Awesome hikes. It's just, it is just amazing out here. Everything. Right. Like I just, right. every time I look across the horizon or drive down a mountain road or something, I just shake my head and I'm like, man, this is, this is it. I mean, this right. is, this is really it. So, so on fly fishing. All right. I've never been fly fishing before, but is it as cool as it looks on TV? Dude, it's cooler. No, it's cooler. It's than cooler that. than that. It, it is the the way I've as I've gotten into it, I've come to realize the reason I think I like it is it's like the bow hunting version of fishing. Right. So it is. It's it's frustrating. You <laughs> just like bow hunting, um, but it's very nuanced. You really have to be very engaged, thinking through all these different variables. And it's like you're hunting fish. You know, you're sneaking up through a river, wading through, trying to, you know, see a fish rising or trying to figure out what these fish are feeding on. Or if that's not working, then, you know, what are the potential other options? Why is this happening? Why is that not happening? And then putting this puzzle together, you know, just like why you and me just love whitetail hunting. That's what's kind of going on with fly fishing. It's putting the pieces of the puzzle together, figuring out what's the right next move. And on top of all that, it's, you know, it's hard to find a stream or river that you can fish for trout in with a fly rod and it not be beautiful. So it's gorgeous scenery. There's something very almost therapeutic about like being out on a river, just the sounds and the sights. Um, and it's also one of those activities that once you start doing it, you'll forget you're actually doing it. You're just so focused on the next step, the next cast, the the next rise of a fish in front of you that, you know, five, six, seven hours can pass and you don't even realize it. And all of a sudden you're like, holy shit, I, <laughs> what have I been doing this whole time? So right. it's, uh, it's tough. Um, there's lots of things to figure out, but it's been a lot of fun. It's, it's definitely been addicting for me. Right. So check this out. All right. So, um, I didn't think I was going to be able to go out West this year. And I mean, not talking about if you follow the, uh, wired to hunt podcast, Mark and I talk a little bit about maybe teaming up and going on a, a Nebraska hunt in October. So my wife tells me, Hey, I got invited to, uh, a bachelorette party in Denver, Colorado. And I said, when is it? She goes, well, it's late September. And I said, I will drive you there. <laughs> so, so I might be driving my wife and a couple of her friends to this bachelorette party in Denver, Colorado, and drop them off in Denver on like a Thursday night, Friday morning type of scenario. And there is a over-the-counter elk zone that is literally one hour from Denver. And uh, I contacted a guy I, I met online um, through – uh, the podcast here that I do. And he's like, dude, I'll, t I will help you and I'll take you out. And if I don't get a tag, I may just go hunting with him, bow hunting, you know, call for him, back up, call for him, you know, and, or actually get a tag, like a cow tag. I think it's like 350 bucks and maybe try to shoot a, shoot a cow. So I might still be in the, in the game for a Western hunt this year. Dude, that's genius. Take advantage no. of opportunities like that. That is great. Right. I love right. it. And, 
And it makes me kind of seem like a hero at the same time when I all, you know, I obviously have ulterior motives. <laughs> <laughs> this is a win-win, my friend. I know. I know. So <laughs> where else are you? you I, <laughs> don't, hey, don't say that too loud because I'm really not. <laughs> Where else are you? Where else are you hunting this year, or what? What other animals? Yeah, so I got that Montana whitetail hunt in uh, early September, and then it looks like my friend Josh. I don't know if you've ever met Josh. My best friend growing up, Josh, is going to come and meet me out here, and we're going to try elk for a little bit again. I think we're going to sneak back down to Idaho where you and me were at. Nice. So that's just in the beginning process of planning that. So I'm going to try to extend this trip a little bit. So he's going to fly out and meet me. And then come back soon after that, and it's Ohio whitetail starting September 24th. And then I'm going to bounce back and forth between Michigan and Ohio. And then if you and me end up doing that Nebraska trip, that's probably the one other state I might throw in there. Um, right. So I don't know. I, I, you know, We haven't even talked about this on the Wired Hunt podcast, but I've also been toying with the idea of hunting more up at our northern Michigan deer camp we've got this oh, really 40 acre property up in northern michigan and the hunting has been abysmal for the last 20 years i right. mean if if a, if a couple does are seen it's like hey this is a pretty good season um right. but i don't know i kind of want to try to figure it out i mean there are deer up there um and there's tons and tons of public land yeah. so i'm kind of just kind of intrigued with just exploring some more and seeing if I can apply some of the lessons I've been learning this last you know, decade down in southern Michigan and some of these other states, if I can apply that to trying to find a somewhat older deer in northern Michigan. So I don't know. We'll, we'll see where things go, but uh, it, it'd be a fun adventure, and it's just beautiful up there. So right, that's my game plan. So trail cameras, right? You haven't had a chance to check your your trail cameras um and in ohio you know last year me and you had that bet going on um and uh what was the bet for like i have to wear a michigan state hat and i gotta buy you some beer hey, you, and then you never I won't. did any of it well i lost but, didn't i yeah you yeah. lost so what did you i lost. you i forgot well i i got to host one of the shows oh yeah 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 i'm losing my all mind. Right. yeah that's all right that's all right so this year you're you're stuck out there in Montana. Oh, it's not like you're stuck because I'm I'm jealous I'm jealous of you, right? You can't check your trail cameras, so maybe you're just a little bit jealous of me. Yes. Um, did you happen to see the pictures that I, I sent you? I did. I did. Giant. Absolutely that, giant. I, I don't know what it what there is about flipping through your trail camera pictures and all of a sudden that first pop. The first picture that comes up of just a giant, and then you get a, you get a little bit aroused. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> I get a whole bunch aroused. I was gonna say I'm, I'm full on at that point, Dan. <laughs> I need a I need a math book. Yeah, coming down a little bit. <laughs> yeah. What if my wife comes down? What have you been doing? Uh, yeah. Looking at deer pictures. <laughs> don't accidentally call it horn porn. Exactly. Exactly. They they don't they don't get that. No. No. <laughs> All right, Mark. Well, so like I, I briefly mentioned earlier, you're going to do a little bit of a – we're going to turn the tables today and you're going to kind of interview me, kind of do a hunter profile podcast that we've done uh, that I, I typically do on this show. We talk about you know what people got – you know how they got into hunting and stuff like that. And like I said, 
I would feel like a D bag if I interviewed myself and answered my own questions on the show. So I'm like, Mark Kenyon, he doesn't have anything to do. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Nothing better than this. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So I'm like, Hey bud, uh, why don't you interview me? And you said, do I have to? And then I said, <laughs> I would really appreciate it. <laughs> This is this is a real pain in my ass, Dan, but I guess I'll do it. <laughs> All right. All right. Oh, by the way, uh, I'll have you know, I have not eaten any dog food in the past week and a half. Oh, my so. gosh. If, if only your audience – did you tell your audience that full story? No, I didn't tell them. I, I'm just going to say go to the latest Wired to Hunt podcast and you're going to hear a story of how I accidentally ate dog food. So yeah. And there. your your eyes will just be so open <laughs> to who the host of this show is. The guy you've been listening to for however many episodes it's been. It's been like almost a year coming on now, I feel like. And now you're all of a sudden going to realize the quality of individual you've been listening to. Right, right. <laughs> he eats completely, Right. Completely underwhelmed with, with how all this has gone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> People, I'll, You know, I'm surprised you don't lose – viewers because of having me on the show and i'm surprised anybody listens to this podcast so you know i guess there's other guys out there just like me there's there's the occasional guy who says he's got the same scars as you right <laughs> exactly <laughs> that kind of guy <laughs> exactly exactly so i gotta well, say dan yes um and sorry i don't mean to interrupt, interrupt you but i, I just want to all point out before we get started with this that you are really setting yourself up for failure I know because I know. because the Huge last risk. the last hunter profile that I saw you post at least now I'm not sure when you're going to publish this one but the last hunter profile to air on the Nine Finger Chronicles was the story of a guy who's killed 377 <laughs> deer all right and the next one Warren is Womack. and the next one is Dan Johnson exactly exactly <laughs> I mean talk about a letdown talk about a letdown for your audience. <laughs> You know, I never thought about that. Maybe I'm going to have to have an, a really crappy. I'm going to like autumn just because I'll put out a really crappy podcast and then maybe save this one for further down the line. So yeah. it's not as such a huge transition. You you really do need to because it's all about <laughs> it's all relativity, man. And right now you're not looking so hot. <laughs> I know. Damn. Damn. Okay. <laughs> all right. Go ahead. Oh, no, all right. So. I, I guess I'm just going to say, Mark Kenyon, take it away. All right. <laughs> <laughs> that was a shitty transition, but oh well. Really we can good. we can edit it, right? Leave it leave it as is, Dan. Yeah. Auth authenticity. Yeah. Authenticity. So, so all right. So I'm going to take the reins now of the Nine Finger Chronicles. <laughs> and Dan, Dan Johnson, welcome to the show. My question for you to kick this off: Why do you hunt, Dan? Hmm. Why well, first, first off, Mark, I want to say it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you very much for uh, interviewing me, having me on the show today. Yeah, the pleasure is all yours. Uh, I love your podcast. Yep, exactly. Uh, I love your. I love the Wired to Hunt podcast. Huge fan of it. Um, but that's a very hard question, Mark. Um, and to, and now trying to go from a complete silly guy to serious, you yes, know. Yes. But it's very. It's very hard to explain because I, you know, in the past, I've done a lot of reading of 
you know, the magazines and you, these guys who tell their stories about the, the deer that they've harvested, these big bucks that they chase, the, you know, the chess match um, that they have with these animals and just in, in nature. But what I've found out is that it's almost impossible in writing or even video you know, video does a really good job because a little bit more of your senses are stimulated. But when it comes to writing, you're using your own imagination. And I've found that writing, it's almost impossible to describe the same scenarios that an individual themselves goes through on like a, a, a season basis. So one reason I hunt is there's something inside me that's telling me to do that. And I can't, I, I really can't describe it. It's like, it's like breathing or it's like, you know, when you're hungry, you have to eat. It's something that's internal that is telling me hunt, be outside, be in nature, chase these animals. And that's the best that I can do. I mean, when I, when I'm sitting in a tree stand, I, I am loving it no matter if I see deer or not, you know, I've learned to appreciate nature and the, you know, the chase and, you know, obviously the kill is the cherry on top. Yeah. I think a lot of people can relate to those types of feelings. It's, it's definitely right. a hard question to answer. And everyone has their own take on it, but it's never really easy to put those thoughts and feelings into words. How about you? Well, this podcast isn't about me, Dan. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, but <laughs> it's, it's still my podcast. Podcast, okay, so answer, so answer, answer the, the damn question. <laughs> Okay, so so for me, I've thought about this a lot, and I try to figure out, you know, how can I articulate all the different aspects of why I hunt, um, and I typically kind of break it down into, I think, three parts. You know, yeah. part one, I hunt for meat and sustenance, first and foremost, you know, when it all boils down to it, I'm acquiring meat and nutrition for myself and my family, but of course that, you know, just saying that's all it is, is of course yeah. so... Um, uh, it minimalizes all these other aspects like you mentioned. I mean, I hunt because it is just like you said, it's a way to participate in nature. It's a way to be out there and not just be an observer, not just watch animals or walk around, but, you know, actually be a part of that cycle. And you and any other hunter knows what I talk, what I'm talking about when, when you're out there as a hunter, it's different. You know, it's a different feeling. You are connected in a different way. You feel and see and hear and smell things at so higher of a level than anyone else who's just out there observing. Right. Um, so I hunt to be a part of that cycle to connect with something that is so very human, right? Like you right. said, you don't, there's this part of you or part of us that just, we have to be out there doing it. And I think that's kind of like our instinct, like, you know, humans, we evolved as hunters and for thousands and thousands of thousands of years, that's what we were bred and born to do. So I think it makes sense that by, um, by, you know, putting that into action, putting those instincts and that genetic kind of background into action, it, it of course is going to satisfy some type of need or urge inside of us. Um, and you know, you know, I could talk for way too long about it. So those are a couple, those are a couple of the reasons, I guess I want to participate in nature. I want to feed myself and my family. I want to challenge myself. Uh, and I want to, I want to get outside and, and, uh, be with these incredible animals and in incredible places. That's a fact, Jack. Yeah. So, 
What about this? I want to take it back. Uh, take it back a little bit, right? Why you hunt was an interesting question, but I guess before we can fully understand your answer, there we need to know kind of how you got to this point. So I'm curious. A, when did you start hunting? I'm not sure if that's something that everybody knows. How long have you been hunting? Well, there there is what I'm going to say pre and post 2006. All right. Pre 2006, I started hunting when I think I was probably 12 years old. First time I ever went bow hunting. I got uh, I got a bow from my mom got a bow from a garage sale, and my stepdad at the time he was kind of a he was a, a hunter, and he kind of I guess I don't want to say lit it because I did a majority of it myself, but I can remember uh, my mom buying me a bow, arrows that didn't match, and every one of them had a different broadhead on it. Right, so <laughs> yeah. you know I'm in I'm in my backyard. I my my grandpa gives me two bales of hay. My mom puts a piece of paper on it and like puts a a black dot. I stand ten yards back and. I'm drawing back and I hit the bale of hay like with the first five arrows, didn't adjust the sight at all on it. You know, the grouping was not even close to tight and I felt I was ready to go hunting. Good to go. (laughs) (laughs) Good to go. So I can remember my mom taking me out for one of the very first times. I think I was 12 or 13 years old and my, she parked near this bridge, near this creek and there was a strip of timber that went up into this property off this road that I think one of my buddies lived on. So I kind of knew the area a little bit and she dropped me off and she stayed parked there for the entire hunt. I up this, this strip of timber and I could still see the reflection of the sun off the top of the car. So I, I, I had to be fairly close to the car still. And I just remember, I didn't know whose property it was. I didn't ask permission to, to go on it. I just jumped the fence and started walking into this uh, section of timber. And I, I kind of sat on a log, my, my camouflage. I think I was wearing jeans with probably the oldest camouflage that had ever been made. Bought it at a garage sale. So it's interesting. Your camouflage from age 12 to about 30 didn't change at all. <laughs> <laughs> Right. No, it did not. <laughs> Walmart. Yep. <laughs> Sorry, continue. No, that's fine. Uh, <laughs> that's a good one. That's a good one. But uh, but yeah, I, I, I think I saw a, a doe that night at about, uh, oh, 250 yards away. And I didn't know anything about scent control. I didn't know anything about wind. I didn't know anything about deer hunting strategy. Just kind of went into the woods and... Uh, started just sat there and I remember, you know, not necessarily running, but walking fast back to the car and like, mom, I saw a doe. Oh, wow. You know, my mom's the kind of person who's like, uh, uh, I get a C minus and she's like, Oh, good job, Dan. You know, like that kind of mom. (laughs) So supportive of you. So excited for you. Right. Right. So that, that's kind of how I got, got into it. And then from there, it was you know up until 2006. Then I started getting involved in sports. I, I, I wasn't taking hunting too seriously. Sports came first, and then you get into the social life of high school and other things took priority. I, I hunted every year, 
but not hard. You know, I, I would go out when it was not raining and, you know, the temperatures were decent. You know, I had some encounters with some really big bucks back then, but you know, it's hard for me to, I think one of the, I think I was 14 or 15 years old. And I remember if I had to go off memory, I'd say a 160 inch buck come by my tree stand and walk right outside of the shooting lane that the farmer, the other guy who I, he's letting me hunt on his property, uh, had it walked right outside. And I just remember not even getting excited because I didn't know what I was supposed to see, you know, <laughs> how, how, you know, like right now, if 160 inch came by my tree stand, I'd be jacked. But because it's, it wasn't, you know, I didn't know what was, what was big. I'd never seen deer up close before. And I just remember going, Oh man, I had, a, I guess this deer, you know, he's, I can't shoot him cause he's not close. So it was one of those things where the very first deer that was going to come by was, you know, out of, you know, it was going to get an arrow at it. Yeah. Well, what, when was the first deer that you ever killed? When'd you kill your first deer? My first doe that I ever killed was actually now in 2006. So it, it was not until 2006 where I shot my very first doe. Now I didn't, like I said, I didn't know anything about tuning a bow. I did all of it myself. I, you know, I, I knew some guys who worked at a archery shop and they gave me some pointers, but the equipment was really old. You know, I had inconsistent arrows, you know, broadheads were all different weights and sizes. And I basically just went out there and I fired, I fired, uh, arrows at just about every animal that walked my way. And I, I hit a button buck one year, never found him. Uh, I missed does and bucks for, I don't know how many years before I was able to, in 2006, that's what I'm saying. Pre and post 2006 is when I got 100% serious about hunting. So, so what happened at that point? What triggered this change? Well, <laughs> it's kind of funny because in 2006, um, I just got out of a long-term relationship with a girl and, and thanks for clarifying. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming. I knew that was coming, <laughs> but I, I got out of a long relationship and it was one of those things where you're like, Oh man, I'm never going to find love again. Boo hoo me. You know, you're all, you're all upset and mad at yourself and all that stuff. And that year I went into the woods one day and it was just gorgeous and it wasn't hunting season yet, but I was kind of, you know, thinking about maybe I'll get back into hunting and I just had this aha moment in the timber and, uh, and then I, I got a tag and then I, I, I had some property that I could hunt. So I, I went up and, uh, I had a, I got a ladder stand from a, a, a local, like a, I guess a farm store. It's called Farm King and the tree stand, it was a ladder stand. I think it was uh, 14 foot and I think I spent like 40 bucks for it. And I bought one, set it up in a piece of timber and I, and I remember sitting up there, it was early October and just having this, this realization that this is where I needed to be and this is what I needed to do because it made me happy. And at that part, like that point in my life, I really wasn't happy. 
but hunting and being outside made me happy. And that's why I decided to, uh, I, you know, I didn't ease into it after that. I cannonballed into it. Just, just everything was whitetail hunting. So that year then after that experience, you killed that first deer. Do you remember what that was like? That first deer, you know, when it walked in and you took a shot, do you remember that still? Uh, like it was yesterday. I mean, I'm, I'm in this little strip of timber right in between two ag fields. And there was a kind of a ditch that led to a river and, uh, all like when it would rain, it would fill up. And, uh, my stepdad, he was like, well, there's, uh, there's some deer tracks down there. Why don't you go and, uh, set a stand up in there? So I went in early season in 2006, set a, set a stand up in there. And there was the, all the deer were walking on, I saw like four deer before I ended up seeing the next two deer that walked by and the, all the deer were on the outskirts. So I'm like, Oh man, I got a, this trail looks well used, but I'm going to have to move my stand over to this field edge where they're all walking. They're crossing a road coming into this strip of timber. Then they're cutting across this little strip into this field. And then I look out of the corner of my eye and there's probably a 120 inch two year old buck. And again, Everything I've read up to that point or, you know, talk about, especially Iowa, is and, – and I've seen tons of deer in fields. I've had encounters with tons of deer that size. I didn't get excited. I wasn't going to shoot that buck. But right behind him was a doe. And I remember letting this – and it was seven yards. This trail went right in front of this stand. And, and I, I remember my hand starting to shake because I knew I was going to shoot this doe. And I let the buck kind of walk by because it was real tight. So before having ever shot any deer, you passed a 120 something inch buck. Yeah. Yep. It was the very, it was my, at the time it was the closest. Now the second closest encounter. Cause I, I missed, uh, when I was probably about 17, I missed, uh, a buck that probably would have went 150 straight down. Straight, his antler hit my my tree stand one year. Wow! But then you know I I went to college and I didn't hunt as much and then you know whatever 2006 and so I passed this buck and this doe they had to cross one at a time so the buck had to cross and then once he got to the other side then the doe crossed and then at that point they were right in front of my stand and I drew, drew back and I remember I was shaking so bad that I had to put lean back and put my back against the, against the tree. And I su- I took a deep breath, settled my pin, let it fly. I smoked her and I had to sit down. That's how bad I was shaking. And, and if that, if I wasn't already in love with hunting, that right there was my foundation. Yeah. That was, that solidified everything that i do to this day i bet now what about when you when you walked up on that deer now i asked this because you know i was a gung-ho i you know i loved hunting and doing it my whole life growing up but when i finally did kill my first deer and i didn't kill my first deer until i was relatively old too i think i was 19 or 20 or something like that i'd been waiting to shoot a buck i didn't want to shoot a doe for my first deer for whatever reason um when i finally walked up on that first deer i shot i was so excited but that when i first saw him laying there dead i had that feeling Yep. I don't know, a sense of remorse or guilt or sadness or something. Yep. Um, you know, a lot of complicated emotions. What were your emotions yep. like when you walked up on that first year? 
Right. So, you know, I had that same type of emotion. I remember my uncles would go out and they'd they'd go coyote hunting and I would get sad when they would bring the coyote, the dead coyotes back to skin them. I, for some reason I, di- I didn't like that when I was younger, I'd cry. And that was when I was nine, 10, you know, you know, years old. But at the same time growing up, I can remember working tra- trap lines with my uncle and my grandma. And I was that guy who, if they're still alive in the trap, you beat them to death with a bat. So it's like, so the, the, the emotions wasn't that deep. For animals, you know what I mean? Right, right. So I just remember walking up to that, and as soon as I saw the you know, its fur sticking out of the weeds, I stopped and I was like mm, 10, 10 yards away, and I just sat there. And I did have this emotion that went through me that was like, You just you just ended a life, but that mixed with the excitement of me doing it all myself and knowing that, Hey, I just provided. And the other thing that went through my head was I just provided meat for the family freezer. And I was kind of proud of that. Oh yeah. You know? So I had this, I had the, these, all these, you know, this cocktail of emotions that were going through, but it ended up, you know, I got it hung and you look at it and I think one thing about deer that makes it hard for some people to kill them is because they are a very beautiful animal and you look at their eyes, their big eyes, they're gorgeous. And it's at times it can be very hard for a a new hunter to get over that. And I think I had a little bit of that uh, with my first kill. Yeah. Very understandable. And I think, I think everyone has some version of that, you know? Yeah. Right. We all, we all, I think if you, if you don't, and this is just me personally, for whatever that's worth. But if you don't have some level of emotion when it comes to taking the life of an animal, that's a little concerning for me. Um, right. Because it is a serious thing, you know? Exactly. I agree 100%. But uh, so you killed your first deer. That was an incredible experience, a complicated experience. But it sounded like, you know, just before that, you had passed on a 120 inch buck. So from the very get go for you, were you in the mindset of holding out for a big or a mature buck? Right. So through my uncles and through reading, uh, you know, and, and back then, you know, for the magazines, right, there wasn't near, in my opinion, there wasn't the articles and the even some of the, the, the VCRs or the, the VHS tapes that you know, would watch. There was there was less emphasis on maturity and more emphasis on big racks. Right. Mm-hmm. And but, but they did mention, you know, hey, uh, a deer's got to get old to get big. And I remember having a conversation, I, I think it was with my uncle or one of my uncle's buddies, and he lives in uh, northeast Iowa and, in um, Alamakee County, which I believe is the number one Boone and Crockett County for Iowa. And he's telling me, there's no, there's no, all he said to me was, there's no reason to kill a buck that's not mature. And for some reason, he didn't really give me any details other than that, that exact comment. And for me, I was just like, that's just stuck with me. If you want to kill a deer, kill a doe, let the, let the bucks get to maturity. And that for some reason that has stuck with me, my entire, my entire, I guess, bow hunting career, if you want to call it that. Yeah. And I think that mindset and that 
culture that is there in Iowa for a lot of people compared to most other states is probably one of the big parts of, of why you guys have such great numbers of older and bigger deer, you know? Right. There's, there's some places that people don't ever say that type of thing. Right, right. And it's also kind of cool because Iowa, and when I hear people from Wisconsin talk or Pennsylvania or, you know, Michigan, for, I feel that there is a lot more tradition in hunting in those states. And I feel that there's, a, you know, we still have our traditions in Iowa, like shotgun hunting and party hunting, but I think there's a lot less of it because it is such, it is such focus on agriculture here and not necessarily hunting. Yeah. I think there's definitely some truth to that. Like you said, like some of these, especially these northern states, and maybe it's just because I'm part of that, but like you said, Wisconsin, Michigan, New York, Pennsylvania, you know, deer yep. camp and the opener of deer season and all sorts of things around that is like a very entrenched part of like the lore of our states. Yep. And uh, right. yeah, it's interesting. I've no, definitely noticed the same thing. It's very different in other states. So you passed on these bucks. You you went into this thinking, you know, I'm waiting on a big buck or a mature buck right out the get-go. I have to believe, though, you're right, and it sounds like you did. You hunted a lot of years before you ever actually got to kill a mature buck. Right. Um, I'm kind of curious. What do you think was the biggest aha moment for you that changed your hunting experience from seeing some good deer or missing good deer or whatever to finally actually having killed one or consistently having chances to what was the biggest aha moment for you and when did that happen well there's there's several um and the thing the thing i wish in, in on the wired to hunt podcast right we hear these guys talk about bow hunting being a learning experience it's not necessarily one thing that is oh my God, I've been doing it wrong this entire time. It's, I have literally failed for, you know, it's, I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to say when I started bow hunting hardcore in 2006, it's two, it's 2016 now. So I have literally failed more times, more seasons than I have been successful. More hunts have been quote unquote failures than actually being successful. And when I, say failure, I mean not harvesting deer, you know, because you get to take away a learning experience, you know, I mean, if, but if you want specific examples, um, the, the first buck I ever harvested, right. I am walk. It's so windy and, and, but it's the rut, right. And it's so windy. I didn't see a deer all night, but I'm in a, I'm in a decent spot where this, uh, this draw comes up to a field edge and the, the deer typically come out of there and it's the rut and i'm like screw this i'm getting down and i'm walking down i'm walking down the ladder and i look behind the tree and there is a four-year-old buck coming right up the up that draw so i climb back up in my tree stand luckily he didn't see me he came out came all the way around and i drilled him at like 20 22 yards and that was a learning experience never get out of your tree early unless like if the conditions are right, stay in your tree. Yeah. You know, I can, I can understand leaving your tree if the wind switches or something like that, but never again did I ever leave a tree stand early because I wasn't seeing anything because it, it, it takes one second. That's all it takes. That's the truth. <laughs> right now. Why did you kill that buck though? Like what did you do right 
other than get back into your tree stand quietly enough, what happened right on that hunt that actually led to you being able to close the deal? Well, like I, like I said, location, right? I was, I was hunting a field edge back then and I very rarely do that now, but I was hunting a field edge of this draw where does typically would congregate. They'd come out of this draw and they would, it's, it was a soft transition and cause there was some grass in between the timber line and the field edge and they would work their way up. And then it was on the back side of this hill. So on a South wind, all the, you couldn't see them from the road cause they were down past the, the crest of the hill and they would just congregate in this one area where my tree stand was at. And that's, you know, I got some of that information from my stepdad at the time. I got some, uh, you know, information from other hunters telling me stuff, reading about it, learning from, you know, previous mistakes, knowing, you know, moving your tree stand just a little bit closer to where that trail came out. And, uh, and then them kind of working that, uh, that, that field edge to the slow spot. And that's where they would congregate. And that's, you know, that's why I shot that, you know, was able to shoot that buck from a, from a strategy standpoint anyway. Nice. Was that, what was that like having killed that first buck, that first mature buck? Was that a different feeling than when you killed that doe? Right, right. And yes, it was. Um, because I don't know, killing that first buck was it. That is what got me, you know, focused, I guess, on more on bucks. And I don't want to say more focused, but you know, that's why I run trail cameras. That's why I put mineral out. That's why I, I do all these things that I do is to locate a mature buck and try to put a game plan together to harvest them. But when I walk, like watching him die right in front of me was, it was a weird feeling because you did have a little bit of that remorse still because of uh, this one, I, I, I watched him die. I double lunged him and I watched him, you know, pass right in front of me. And you had a moment there where, I don't know, it, it's almost like you, yes, I just, I just shot my first buck, but at the same time, you're like, we, I don't know how to put this. We are humans are the ultimate predator and I outsmarted him and I beat him at this game and I won and I was kind of ha- I kind of had a, a little, a moment like that as well. Interesting. Now you shot that with a bow, right? Right. Correct. And have you shot all your deer with a bow? Uh, all but two. I've shot two, two deer with, uh, a 20 gauge shotgun, two does. And other than that, all bow kills. So why do you focus mostly on bow hunting? Why are you primarily a bow hunter? I want to be, for me, I want to be up close and personal with my target. I want to outsmart it. I want to be in the right position at the right time. And I know you can do that with a gun, but, you know, during December, the deer are they're running all over the place because of pressure from different, you know, portions of the farm or deer drives coming through. I want to be able to locate a deer. I want to be able to intercept it, not, you know, push it into a location or, you know, shoot it on a field edge or something, you know, at a long distance. I want to be up close and personal with it. And that's just something that's, that 
uh, for some for some reason, bow hunting is one of those things. It's you you have to, it's almost you get personal with with your target. Yeah, I know what you mean there. Do you do you think you're a good bow hunter? You know, that's a that's a question I ask myself a lot. And based off of my success rate, I would say no. But every you know, being able to accomplish a goal like last year, uh, user error, I I missed uh, a giant, probably high one sixties, low one seventies buck. Um, I've had encounters with you know giant deer for you know four five six year old bucks and you know with a variety of you know you know boone and crockett antlers and i haven't had the opportunity yet to i mean i've shot i mean the deer hanging on my you know that my first buck was uh, a four-year-old my second buck i shot was a six-year-old the buck i shot um in 2012 that's hanging on my wall was uh i think he was a five a four a five or six year old and um i've had you know i've had the opportunity to shoot these younger deer never did it i've had the opportunity to shoot you know bigger bucks like you know the shipwreck story you know i shot that buck and honestly had buck fever never uh and you know buck fever i I let it control me so I feel I'm a good bow hunter in respect to finding, locating the deer, getting into position. Now I have to learn how to seal the deal at the other end. You know what I mean? Because I, I, I get a, it's not like I get nervous. It's just, it's, it's different when something you've been following all year presents itself. It's almost like I, I would feel better if I didn't run trail cameras, if that makes sense. Yeah, so we we've talked about this on Wired Hunt, but yeah, for for your audience here, explain what happens to you, what goes through your mind, or what physical reaction you have when that moment presents itself, when the buck you've been following all year, multiple years, shows up in front of you, and you have a potential shot opportunity. What's that experience like for you? Right. I should I should clear something up. Last year or in 2015, when I missed that buck, I I ranged it bad. I I, I messed up. I, I wasn't nervous, but I, I had messed up. I shot over his back high. I misjudged distance. There's that. But let's say I'll use shipwreck as an example. 210-inch um, deer, right? I, I had an encounter with him in 2008, I believe it was. So I have five years of history with this buck. I, I watch him. I'm, I'm finding his shed antlers. I know exactly where he's living, all these encounters with him. And finally, that moment he presents himself, right? All that comes to my mind, and I lose control. And I I, I, I – it's like I went into autopilot when I shouldn't have. You got, you know, you have to focus. And I just remember I'm shaking, and I pulled back. I shot him high, and it, there there needs to be a moment of clarity for bow hunting, right before you pull that trigger. If not, then you know it's not it's not worth pulling the trigger on. If that makes sense. Yeah, something. It's funny. Something. Um... You know, I still experience something like that very often when I'm hunting too. It's frustrating, you know. Right. Um, but I in in one of the new episodes of Wired Hunt coming out here soon, it was one actually that that you couldn't join me on. But I interviewed Eddie Claypool, 
who's like one of the most successful bow hunters out there. He writes for Peterson's, I think Peterson's bow hunting, um, or bow hunter magazine. I always get this mixed up. Um, but he writes tons and tons, tons of these articles where he's had so much success hunting whitetails and all sorts of big game all across the country. I mean, he's, he's really, really good at what he does and he still has those kinds of issues. And he described it in the same way, you know, as you just did. And as I, you know, typically do that autopilot mode. And I, you know, sometimes when that happens to me, I'm like, Oh my gosh, what's wrong with me? Right. It's, it's kind of reassuring to know that it's not just me. It's not just you. Right. You know, it's, it's something that we all have to deal with, whether we've been hunting for 50 years or five or five weeks. Um, and it's a challenge that we're all going to struggle with and deal with in different ways. But it's, it's not something to, you know, to feel to, I don't know. I mean, you need to try to fix it, but you don't need to feel right. bad about it and like think you're a horrible hunter or something because of it. It's a very natural reaction, you know? Right. And that's, you know, I always use that term, act like you've been there. And there's guys out there who are stone cold killers. They don't, they know exactly what to do. They've been around big deer before and I've been around big deer before too. But, you know, I think that harvesting, it it, it sucks because subconsciously I have a thing for big racks, like a majority of us do. Right. So I, I am still learning that identify the rack, then get it out of your head, then focus on the shot. You know what I mean? Yeah. And like you said, it, it definitely is an experience thing. The more experience you have, the typically the better you'll be able to deal with that. But uh, right. it's not easy. No one thing I what one thing I don't want it to turn into is something where I don't even get excited anymore. You know what I mean? Like then I feel that I I'm not. That's not the purpose of it. Like I want to be excited when I harvest a deer and. I think a lot of it has to do is when that excitement kicks in. It's like once the air, after the arrow is released, then you can get the excitement, not before. Yeah. Or being able to harness that excitement into focus. Exactly. You know, and then have yeah. that just blatant excitement afterwards. Right. It's no, no easy task though. That's for sure. Uh, so I want to take, I want to rewind just a little bit. I was just thinking, you know, we need a little context for your experiences. You know, you, you're seeing a lot of great deer. You've had all these different encounters and stuff. What's it like where you hunt? Where do you hunt? Tell me about that area, the landscape, the culture, the types of deer, the type of hunting. What are you dealing with? Right. I mean, so I, I hate to say it, but picture the ideal whitetail habitat. Picture everything that a hunter dreams about. That's where I get to hunt. Now, don't get me wrong. I hunt on my 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 main farms are agriculture farms, right? They have livestock running in the pastures. So I, I have to, I don't hunt on leases or on any big managed pieces of property. I hunt on farms and I hunt on uh, working farms, you know, uh, cattle, horses, goats, crops, um, people coming in and out. And I also share that property with, uh, other hunters. So I'm still getting pressure but it's it's a different kind of pressure than let's say like public ground right so yeah. one of the one farms that i have is a big giant valley ravine that runs all the way through the property and off of those are these little fingers that drop down into it and on top the high ground is pretty much your your typical ag field right 
and you know there's cricks running through it so i have these pinch points so and it's it's real thick and nasty in there because it the the cattle pastures over the years have shifted so one area will grow up and be really thick and nasty and that's your bedding area and so i have everything that a whitetail needs to thrive not only from a cover standpoint but i got egg i got low brows i got mast so i have it on this piece of property and the thing about it is all i did was knock on a door to get it what kind of deer do you typically see in a given year um i guess it just depends i mean again i don't want to sound like i'm some stud you know because i'm really not i'm just a regular guy who gets to hunt some pretty badass property i mean i'm seeing your typical does i'm seeing your spikes you know your one two three-year-olds um and then i'm blessed because i get to hunt deer that are in the 170s 180s um and even up to the 200s that i have in the past and uh so it's just it's something that i am I, I think about every day and I think about, you know, cause I do a, with, with this blog and this podcast, I do, I have a lot of interaction with guys from other States and they, they're, I don't know how to put this. It, it's, I, sh- I get excited over what I have in front of me, just like they get excited over what they have in front of them. And that's how I know we're brothers. You know what I mean? It's not like, I mean, I, I'm, I'm just blessed because I was born in Iowa and this is where I happen to live. You know what I mean? That is a blessing. I will agree with you on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> As it is an awesome place. So, I mean, long story short, the, I get to see what the television shows show and I'm just, you know, and what, what else is there to really say about it? <laughs> Fair enough. So- I, and I don't want to sound cocky, but. God dang. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so on a related topic, does your beard help your hunting success? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I feel that, you know, and I haven't done it in the past two years, but I need to shave the what I call the hammer. It's drop basically the hammer. drop the hammer. It's the it's I think this year it's going to happen again. I, I think that I, I really, really think that facial hair uh, and unique facial hair definitely gives an advantage in the timber. I can't, I can't argue. Well, I can sort of argue with that because I have horrible facial hair and I still kill some deer. But <laughs> well, I'm telling you what, you still have facial hair and that's the thing. Like your, you know, your rookie of the year goatee <laughs> is, <laughs> is pretty, is pretty good. It I'm does not the job. Lie. It does the right. job, I guess. <laughs> oh man. I want I want to go back to the good hunter question. Okay. And you kind of mentioned that, you know. I think I'm pretty good at some parts, some things not all the way. I want to I want to dive back into that a little bit. I think I glossed over that. What of of the good things about you or the good things of how you hunt, what are your best assets as a hunter? What makes you a good hunter? If you were to be say you were a good hunter, what reasoning would you have to say that? Well, I think in a way I my, my trade, I mean, what I do for a living is I'm a process engineer, right? So that 
I'm so I'm not technically an, an engineer. I don't I don't do CAD or I don't design or build stuff. But I I create a process that is the most efficient for what it is that we do. Now, I feel that that kind of helps me in the timber because I am evaluating every possible move. I feel to get to a point where I'm going to intercept a big deer. So I'm. I'm, I'm thinking about wind direction. I'm thinking about access points. I'm thinking about um, historical data from previous years, trail camera pictures or previous encounters. I'm thinking about, you know, what time the crops are going to be harvested. I'm thinking about, you know, where the uh, farmer has their cattle or their horses at, at certain periods of time and how that has reacted, you know, that's changed the deer movement over the years. So I think that I'm kind of I don't want to use the word strategist because that makes it sound a lot better than what what I really am. But I feel that I don't just shoot from the hip anymore like I used to. Now there's times for that. There's times there's times to throw hail marys, but a majority of the season I am I, I am really thinking about where my next move needs to be. Oh, always mapping out the next chess move and the next right. piece, right? Right. And, and doing it two or three step, you know, like two or three days in advance. So, okay, I'm going to hunt this stand tonight, but that means I'm doing that because I know that on my other stand, I can't hunt a North wind. I have to hunt a South wind. And three days from now, when that wind shifts, I know what access route I need to take to get to that stand location, uh, and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So on the other side of the coin, what do, you know, other than what we talked about there a little bit with, you know, sealing the deal on the shot, what would you say you struggle with or what has kept you from being a better deer hunter? Well, definitely that the moment of truth aspect, you know, if you want to say success is based off deer that hit the ground, uh, that definitely the moment of truth where I have, I've, you know, either got buck fever in the past or I, I maybe was like, yeah, well, I don't want to, I don't want to sit leaning forward the whole day. So I'll sit in this tree instead of that tree 10 yards over there. You know what I mean? So, so not necessarily, maybe even being a little bit lazy as far as where the, the tree stand needs to be, where the, and not, not where the best spot is, but where the right spot is. I think those are two different things. That's a tough thing to differentiate between too. Exactly. Exactly. So, um, and, and the other thing that I think that I've been a failure at over the years is my patience because I have a full-time job. I love to hunt, right? So I've had to learn over the years to hunt off, maybe set up observation stands for areas, knowing that you might see a giant way in the distance or not close to where you're hunting, but using that as, um, data. So, you know, when the time is right, you can move in for the kill. And that's not necessarily, I mean, I've been too aggressive in the past when it comes to time of year. I think that in the year, and you know me, I talk, I mean, I talk about hunting mornings early season Mm -hmm. and I believe there's a time and a place for that. Now, if the conditions are not right, I'm not going to do it, but I feel that I really feel that I've been, I, you know, I just want to go hunt and I go hunt my best spots when I should have been hunting a field edge, trying to shoot a doe that night in on, you know, September or excuse me on uh, October 14th or 12th or something like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. That, that That's one of the biggest lessons learned for me too, was 
developing that patience and yeah. knowing when to strike and when to lay back. Right. And I am so against the term October lull that I, when it's that time of year, everybody's like, oh, I'm not hunting today. October lull, October lull. I'm that guy. I want to prove for some reason I got it in my head. I want to prove somebody wrong and I want to go find a deer uh, during that time period. And if have, have an encounter or, you know, jump into a bedding area and do a run and gun, I want to find that October lull spot so I can kill a deer and just for some reason I got it in my head I that term I, I do not like it now have you done it yet I've killed plenty of does almost every you know throughout the entire season but never a buck never a buck so the verdict's out still the, yep I mean for, for you for me yes correct now how about this let's say your average deer hunter if, if we were to look across the country, my guess is that the average deer hunter has, you know, has taken a lot of does, some young bucks, maybe one older buck, maybe two, you know, depending on where they live, of course. You know, if you talk to the average deer hunter in Iowa, it's going to be a lot different than your average deer hunter in New York. But let's just say it's some average guy who's taken average, you know, year and a half old, two and a half year old bucks and a lot of does. But this guy or girl wants to take it to the next level and they want to start focusing on like four and five year old bucks. What from your experience or what you've learned, what would be like the two or three main changes you would tell them they have to make to go from shooting your average year and a half old or two and a half old to jumping up to that mature old four and five year old. Right. First off, and most importantly, there has to be a four, five, whatever your goal is on the properties that you hunt, right? So believe it or not, in Iowa, there are properties where there are no four-year-old deer. Um, there are high-pressure properties and stuff like that. So if you, if, if you want that, you have to go get it. And if you're serious about it and you want to take that next step, you have to be willing to drive to another state. You have to be willing to um, not hunt early season. If, you know, if you have time constraints, you have to be willing to change everything really, because every, these, these mature deer are so different of an animal that it's not like, it's like they go through some kind of mental growth from their two and three year old to when they hit a four year old, they just do things different. And you have to be, you have to, you have to be willing to not only go outside your comfort zone, but bust your ass. And I'm talking about to the point where, Hey, I put up a tree stand and you get up in the tree stand and it was, it took 10, 50, you know, it took 20 minutes to set up. You got your shooting lane, you get, you get up there and you're like, God, you, you, this gut feeling is telling you they're going to go over in this trail. You have to get down, tear that tree stand down, and move it five yards, two trees, whatever it is, just to be in the right spot. Makes a lot of difference. This is it's the small things, right? We talk about this right. a lot. It yep. comes down to when it comes to big bucks, it's the small things. Right. And I mean, it's hard for me because another thing that I've learned over the years is Trail cameras, I mean, they can they can mess with your mind because you'll see a, a mature buck coming to uh, a trail camera on, on through a pinch point, and you're like, "I'm oh my god, he's here! I'm gonna try to hunt him." Well, he's there at one in the morning, 
you know, three hours, four hours, you know, four hours, five hours before the sun even comes up. So you go in there chasing him, you know, wishing that he shows up instead of knowing that he's going to show up and, you know, adjusting my hunting strategy on that has been a big help. And I think I've seen more deer when more deer and more mature deer, when I realize that a trail camera picture of a buck at one in the morning is the same as a trail or no trail camera picture of that buck. Yeah. So tell, let's elaborate on that a little bit. Cause of course everyone's always interested in trail cameras and how people use them. How do you use your trail cameras? And, you know, based on what you just mentioned there, you know, I guess, how are you using them now since you've changed some things in the past? Right. I mean, I still do. I still have a trail camera out almost all year just because I love to, to watch the change and, and document a deer's life. Um, right now and throughout the summer, it's minerals. You know, I have a mineral station where I have a camera over top of them and it is strictly for me, not necessarily that they're getting any benefit from that mineral station. If they are good, but for me, it's about taking inventory of what deer are in the area, how fawn recruitment has been, um, you know, maybe a little bit of herd health, you know, what, what are the numbers, the, the quantity of deer in the area. And then it helps me put together a hit list. I know what buck is what, and I know that they're mature or they're not mature. And that is the determination if it's going to make my hit list or not. So, you know, three-year-old and younger, probably is not going to get an arrow four-year-old and older, no matter if it's four-year-old with a 10-inch rack, it's going to, it's probably going to get an arrow because I, I like to think that I make a majority of my uh, decision based on maturity. Yeah. How confident are you in your 2016 season, the upcoming season that you will kill a buck of that caliber? Man, it's patience. And, and one thing that I've, I've learned is I have spots that if you put in time, in these in these rut spots, these pinch points, and one another thing that I'm not I'm not very good at is sitting all day, and <laughs> yeah, it's those knees, exactly. Well, it's the knees and the back and my entire body basically. But you get with a mature deer, and the and the way that I'm able to take time off, I I always I have had one, maybe two encounters every year with my hitless buck. And when I mean encounters, I mean, I, I've had the opportunity to pick up my bow and almost, almost shoot them. Now they may have went outside my shooting lane or they chased a doe somewhere else. Or like last year, I was screaming at the top of my lungs and I still couldn't, I still couldn't stop him running through the timber. And so all these things kind of play into that. You still there, Dan? Yeah, I'm here. Oh, I lost you. Nope. So then I want to hear a little bit more about this year. You know, what yeah. makes you think what's going to allow you to be successful this year? What's your game plan? Do you have, like, at least for me, when I'm thinking through the season, I'm thinking, okay, at this time of year with this property, I think I could get a good chance. Or if that doesn't work out, at least when I get to this property during this time of the year, I think I can get it done. Like, what? I guess, you know, let me take a step back. What percent? odds would you give me right now that you're going to kill a buck of your of your uh, goal 
I'll say, I'll say 50, 50. I, I have a feeling I'll have a, an encounter with a mature deer this year. Um, like I do most years, but, but, you know, saying that I'm going, you know, anything higher than that, that I'm, I'm going to, to, that is going to end in a harvest is kind of ridiculous because there's so much that can happen from the time that you identify that buck as a shooter or on your hit list to the time when you pick your arrow up and you, you squeeze your release. Yeah. So what is your, do you have a game plan as far as vacation time yet for the rut and all that kind of stuff that you usually do? Right. Um, this year I, I had to take a little bit more uh, vacation time than I normally do uh, prior to this season. So I'm not going to have as much um, time to dedicate to the rut. I typically do two weeks, you know, the first week of October and the second week, or excuse me, the first November. week of November. Yep. And the second week of November. Now, over the past couple of years, I'm not a huge fan of like October 1st, 2nd, 3rd. Um, I, I feel that I'm seeing less deer movement on those days. So I think I'm going to bump everything back and based off of a dates, probably go from November 5th to the 15th, 16th, 17th, something like that. And uh, that's when I'll probably be spending most of my time. That's when I've seen bigger deer on their feet, you know, that late October and then like the very first five days of November seem to be not necessarily dead, but just less movement because the bucks have found their first doe that they're going to breed, the mature bucks. And then that, that period of time when they break away from that first doe is when I've seen a majority of my um, big, bigger bucks on their feet. So if you had to predict what let's – say, let's say you kill a buck this coming season. We're going to say that happens. Tell me what you think that situation would be. The most likely scenario in that you kill a buck this season, lay that out for me. Okay. So there's two scenarios. One is going to be mid-October uh, on a cold front. Somewhere in October when a cold front's coming coming through. And uh, they're not, it's not going to be rut yet. They're not going to be interested. But it's going to get some deer on their feet to go to a food source. I have, a, I have a, an 80-acre. It's basically an ag field with a strip of, uh, it's a buffer strip that runs, prevent erosion that runs right up the middle of it. And, uh, that's, that's, uh, where I had an encounter last year with a four-year-old nine pointer that I would have shot, but he, he just didn't quite get close to me. Uh, I saw another 160 inch deer, a four or five-year-old, I think he was a five-year-old bedded in there. And then he got up and stood up and walked away from me. Uh, he, he went with the wind for some reason, uh, or yeah, with the wind. And then, uh, or the other scenario will be exactly what I just said. That second week of November, that is going to be like the November 11th. For some reason, I, I always think I see big deer on November 11th for over the years. So that, that period of time where I'm in a pinch point, or I'm in some kind of travel corridor in between bedding and food where these bucks are cruising basically for that next doe. I, I think either one's pretty likely. I hope, yeah. I hope it pans out that way. Right. right. Uh, I need a, I need a good Dan story. One of these <laughs> well, days. I, well, I tell you what, the thing about it, the crazy thing about it is right. Everybody gets so jacked up about velvet pictures and I do too. I love seeing big bucks in velvet. But one thing I've also realized over the years is that 
that belt that velvet strips they're they are they're it's almost like that, that velvet comes off there they have a little bit of a different thought process in their head and the you know the beans dry up the acorns start dropping so they're moving and they're dispersing so i have a couple places where you know right now i have a couple trail cameras where i'm getting three three or four deer mature deer on trail camera when that when that shift happens they they disperse and then you're not getting as many bucks on that uh, on those trail cameras and then that's when i have to take my shift my trail cameras from the mineral stations to the pinch points to the fence crossings to the you know the field entrances and try to you know cut them off and get a, a broader picture of where you know the movement's coming from yeah that's such an important differentiation for most hunters to make is that summer activity and pictures do not do not translate into fall pictures right. and activity the totally different behavior totally different patterns in many cases like you said totally different deer as a lot of those bucks relocate to fall ranges so it can result in a lot of frustration if you base all of your expectations and stuff just off those summer pictures amen so amen it's an important thing to to be aware of so right, right. i would i would be willing to bet that you consider one of your greatest challenges as a hunter of mature bucks to be time and that you have a lot of different obligations on your time, your job, your family at home responsibilities, your kids. How do you deal with that? Man, it's tough these days, especially when, you know, when I, and I, I love my wife to death and she puts up with a lot of my shit because, you know, everybody, everybody always says, Oh, I'm only gone two weeks out of the year. Bullshit. You're gone to set up tree uh, stands, to check trail cameras, to do your mineral, to do, you know, if you're, if you're doing food plots, you're going to do food plots. And every one of those days is a day where she may not be able to get something done because she's watching our kids. So, I mean, it, it, it's been a, it's been one of those things to make every, every trip to your property as efficient as possible. And not just go out and check one trail cameras, but go on a day, even if it's like, I mean, there's days where I get up at five in the morning so I can get out and get stuff done. So I'm home before 10 so I can watch the kids while she, you know, does her business and, uh, you know, goes, does her thing. So it, it, it's difficult. It's difficult. It's very difficult, but just managing it to be as efficient as possible. Do you see that changing? Or when do you see I mean, this changing, if if so? Right, right. So I really want a vasectomy, but <laughs> <laughs> don't tell me that she wants another one. Well, she she plays around with the idea, oh, and I man. Her, it's not going to be with me. So <laughs> I don't know where this kid, this next kid's coming from, unless we find it on her doorstep or something. But uh, but it's I don't know. I think that when they get older, when they start, you know, sleeping through the night, when you can tell them something and they'll go and do it, um, when they're able to go to the bathroom by themselves and feed themselves and they don't need constant attention 24 hours a day, that's when I think I'll be able to start getting back into the pre-kids type of hunting that, uh, that may, that may be five more years, but, uh, you know, and by then, I'm going to have partners going into the timber with me. You know what I mean? That'll be pretty cool. 
that will be that um, that's something I'm looking forward to someday with children. Right. And it's going to be, my daughter asked me so many questions about deer these days. Like what's a big buck. And I got, ex- <laughs> what, what state are you living in Ava? Cause that, that can determine what a big bucket. Well, I, I, I live in, I live in Iowa. Yeah. Okay. Well then, so I have to go down and I, you know, I even tell her, you know, you don't have to shoot a buck. You can shoot a doe too. You know, all these different things. So I'm really looking forward to that. That's awesome. Speaking of different states, there's some guys that live in Iowa. Well, yes, let's take it like for some, some guys live in Iowa and you know, it's, it's without a doubt, one of the, if not the best state for big deer, mature deer, whatever you might, what's that? Yep. There's some guys that live in a state like that. Let's say hypothetically like, uh, like a Mark Drury, and of course he's in the industry, but he hunts in Iowa where he lives, but he also hunts in Illinois and Missouri and Alberta and Texas and different places like that. There's other guys who live in a state like Iowa, and because that's about as good as it gets, they never want to go anywhere else. Do you, to this point, for for whitetail specifically, I think you've only hunted Iowa. Do you ever see yourself or do you ever have the interest in hunting other states or for whitetails, or do you think you're just going to stick stick to home because it's so damn good? Right. Well, when it comes to a majority of the time, like uh, spending time chasing whitetail, you're right. I got it really good. If I'm going to spend my time going out west, I would – yes, I do someday want to go out and chase whitetails. You know? And we kind of you – know, I, I kind of did that in Nebraska uh, two years ago but you know, I, cause I, but I, would, I would have rather – if you know, if a whitetail and a mule deer were standing right next to each other, I would have shot the mule deer. But I think my because I do kind of have it good here in Iowa, I want to focus on other species like elk or mule deer or antelope, you know, and and put my energy towards that. But you know, if for some reason I if for some reason I I shoot a deer uh, October first some year. You best believe I'm going to start looking. I'm going to be calling everybody I know, like, "Hey, help me! Point me in the right direction. Give me some public ground." And you know, I'll head to a state that has a lot of over-the-counter tags. Um, go to Nebraska. Go to you know, make that trip to Montana. Make that trip to uh, Illinois or Missouri because they're close, and uh, try to get it done there as well. Well, I don't know if you remember, but last year we had a challenge episode on Wired to Hunt where we okay. challenged each other some things. And last year I challenged you. To go to a different state, particularly Michigan, this year, Dan. Okay. Right. So the the invitation <laughs> is open. If you want to Man. see how the other how the other half lives, I would do it in a heartbeat if I had more time to to use on vacation time. I know it. It's like you said. You you, you got to balance things out. You got to be efficient. That's right. That's right. But you know, hey. If there's any sponsors that are listening to this show <laughs> that want to throw a ton of money at me and say, hey, you don't have to work at your job anymore because we're going to pay you $70,000. That's a lot. But, you know, I, would, I wouldn't turn it down. You know, if the acorn crunchers are going to come calling and say, hey, Dan, push our product for 70K, you best believe every commercial on this podcast would be Acorn Cruncher Works. Dude, Trust you, me. You would sell the shit out of those Acorn Crunchers. <laughs> <laughs> here, here, this is my final question, Dan. Okay. Unless you've got something else you want me to talk about. My last question I have for you is this. What do you see as your long-term goals as a hunter? 
you know, not not what you want to have happen this year, but uh, you know, 20 years from now, when you look back on your quote unquote career or your experiences as a deer hunter or just as a bow hunter in general, what would you like to say you have accomplished or done or seen, whatever it is? Right. So first off, my focus, I want to get to a point where I've been, I've accomplished my Iowa goals. I've shot, you know, three, four years, five years even worth of mature bucks in Iowa. You know, don't really care about the antler size, but I want, I want a a roll. I want to go on a roll for five years, six years. You know what I mean? Harvest a mature buck every year. Then at that point, I want to start and I'm, and I'm going to try to do that now, but I want to transition over to spending more time out West, you know, starting to build those tags up or those preference points for different zones for elk in different States or mule deer or antelope, um, you know, even, take that once, once in a lifetime trip to Alaska and float a river and do a moose hunt, something like that. You know what I mean? And then as the kids get older, I want to be able to focus on educating them and getting, you know, providing them the opportunity to do it, but providing them an opportunity to come hunting with dad. And that's where I kind of see myself, you know, yeah, I will hunt for myself when, the time is right. And when I have, you know, the vacation days to do it, but if the kids want to be able to go, I want to hit that point where I can, no matter what time of year it is, I want to say, Hey, yes, you can come hunting with me. Would you put them in your prime spots? Hell no, not right away. (laughs) (laughs) Max going to have to fend for himself. (laughs) And that's the thing, man. You have to hunting, bow hunting, especially is something you have to learn. You have to learn the ins and outs of it. You have to learn by yourself. You can't have someone go, go sit in that stand and wait for a big buck to come by. I just don't think that's fair to, to the bow hunter because then when that person's gone or they go to a new piece of property, they don't have a clue what they're doing. So bow hunting is so much trial and error that that's how you learn. That's how you get better. And that's not necessarily with bow hunting, but with everything. Very true. Very true. Wise words, my friend. Wise words to end this Hunter profile. Right. Mark Kenyon, thank you very much for uh, coming on the show today and uh, taking time out of your fly fishing schedule to uh, <laughs> to interview me. Not a problem, man. It was fun. I think I even learned maybe a little bit about you today, too. Perfect. Well, I tell you what, not uh, this week, right? But uh, – Two weeks from now, you'll be back in Michigan, and uh, I'll be t- I'll be chatting with you on the Wired to Hunt podcast. That sounds like a plan to me. And I just want to say one thing to your audience here: that uh, despite what I might say and joke sometimes, the host of this podcast is about as genuine, <laughs> genuine and legit of a dude as you can get. He is someone who I think we can all learn something from, um, and we can also all be reminded of the importance of having fun when you're out there hunting or just in life or anything. So uh, mad props to you, Dan. You're doing a great job with the podcast and uh, glad you let me be a part of it. Well, thank you, man. And same to you with the Wired to Hunt podcast. And I guess we're kissing each other's ass now, which uh, <laughs> it's pretty good, pretty good feeling. But, you know, hey, if you know, and that just kind of solidifies that the hunting ha- can can open so many doors and there's so many relations out out that I've built because of hunting, 
And some of the, my best friends are because of the hunting industry and because of bow hunting and what I, you know, the path seems like it's just laced with positives. So thank you. And thank all the listeners for uh, tuning in. Ditto. Once again, I want to say huge, huge thank you to Mark for coming on the show. And if you guys, I, I doubt it, but if you have not visited the Wired to Hunt blog and podcast, you need to go do that because it's chock full of information for hunters. And if you like this podcast, you're going to love Mark's podcast. And uh, yeah, so go check that out at wiredtohunt.com. Huge shout out to each and every one of you guys for taking the time out of your day to download this podcast and give it a listen. I really, really appreciate it. And um, I'm going to return the favor here in August. And what I'm going to do is my 100th episode is coming. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen sometime mid to late August. And I'm going to return the favor. And I'm having as many companies as I can get a hold of uh, that have been on the podcast already uh, provide product for another round of giveaways. And uh, we're going to probably, I don't know, haven't solidified it yet. Uh, it's not in stone of what companies are going to give what, but I am, um, I'm, I'm going to try to give you got get, give back to you guys and uh, get some product in your hands. And I'm going to do a, a, a decent sized giveaway. There's going to be multiple winners and, uh, yeah, so that's going to be me returning the favor to you guys. Again, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this podcast. Another huge shout out, and these guys are going to be taking part of the giveaway as well, Exodus Outdoor Gear. Again, if you guys have not had the opportunity to go to their website and check out what they're doing with their direct-to-consumer to marketing uh program and their trail cameras go visit exodusoutdoorgear.com you're gonna love it and uh if you guys haven't had a chance yet go leave a review on itunes five star but you can rate it really whatever you want but uh uh facebook twitter instagram follow me on there and uh man i think that's about it Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, wear your damn safety harness, have a good hump day.